All right, Nick, so it's July again, which is a very exciting time because we know that this means that there are new incoming residents to uh, OBGYN. Absolutely. Brand new faces. Welcome to labor and delivery. Welcome to the oncology floor. Welcome to the clinic, wherever you are. We hope that you're getting welcomed into OBGYN, and we want to make sure that you know about a great resource in OBG First and the OBG Core. So the OBG core, as many of your senior residents will tell you, is absolutely free to all residents. So we wanted to make sure that you know about that. And then also, again, you also will get access for free if you are a resident to OBG first, as well as the labor and delivery book from the OBG project. There are tons and tons of great resources through the OBG project. You can find them on their website at obgproject.com. But if you're interested in getting signed up for this premium product of theirs for absolutely free for all four years of residency, head over to our website, creagsrivercoffee.com, check out the sidebar, and get signed up today. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is... Creogs over over coffee. coffee. All right, guys. So today we're going to be going back to our GYN and office-based topics. Today we're going to talk about the clinical challenges of long-acting reversible contraceptives. So Nick, what are our learning objectives for today? So today we're going to discuss some common clinical challenges with IUDs and implants that you might encounter during your clinical practice, Um, and then we'll review how exactly to manage those challenges. So short, sweet kind of podcast today, but hopefully practical as well. Um, If you need some reading to follow along, there's actually committee opinion number 672 that actually talks about exactly this, the clinical challenges of long-acting reversible contraception. We've got that linked on our website. Um, but Faye, let's kind of go in and say, you know, we've talked about LARC, of course, on the podcast before. Um, what's the state of play, I guess, with respect to LARC and why it's important to know about these clinical challenges? Yeah, absolutely. So we do know that over the last few decades, uh, there has been an increase in LARC use. And this has been as high as 13.1% in uh, patients who are 20 to 29 and 11.7% in patients who are 30 to 39 years of age in 2018, compared to just 2.4% of patients in 2002. And so while the overall complications of LARCs like you know IUDs and implants are overall very low, less than 1%, the absolute number of these complications are just going to increase as more and more patients start to use LARCs. And so it is really important that we know these complications and recognize them and know how to deal with them. So I guess before, you know, we kind of talk about implants, let's talk about IUDs because I think this is something that, you know, patients really like potentially. And also um, we sometimes hear about some of these complications. So let's start off with that, Nick. Yeah. So, no, I think the first complication certainly that has garnered a lot of attention, and I feel like on Twitter and TikTok and other places I see periodically, is um, this discussion surrounding pain and analgesia or anesthesia with IUD insertion. Um, Certainly, IUD insertion can be painful, and this can be particularly true potentially for nulliparous women. Though, unfortunately, a 2015 Cochrane review concluded, based on the best available evidence, that 
2% lidocaine gel, NSAIDs, and mesoprostol for cervical rightening were all not effective regimens for reducing pain associated with insertion. Um, but we'll talk about a couple of these things now in terms of pain and managing that. Now, mesoprostol used to start, um, meso certainly can cause nausea and abdominal cramping. This has been shown in trials, and we certainly know those side effects from our other uses for mesoprostol as well with respect to um, abortion care, uh, miscarriage care, or with respect to cervical ripening or postpartum hemorrhage. Um, mesoprostol also does require that delay, right, in order to work. We know particularly like with your ripening a cervix for induction, it can take several hours for that to really work. Or if you're ripening for abortion, that can take several hours for that to work. Um, and so it's the same thing for IUD insertion, right? It's pretty much the same type of indication. A paracervical block is another thing that has been studied in some ways. It's been demonstrated to be effective in other office transcervical procedures, and those studies have shown reduced pain with tenaculum placement after local injection of anesthetic at that tenaculum site. Um, but other studies have shown no difference in pain with treatment versus no treatment. And there's been a meta-analysis of various analgesic measures that showed that the lidocaine paracervical block does seem to reduce pain scores associated with tenaculum placement and IUD insertion. So finally, you know, what exactly does the committee opinion come up with here in terms of recommendations? Just says that routine mesoprostol use before IUD insertion in oliparous women is not recommended at this point because of the limitations we spoke about, but could be considered with difficult insertion. And in pain with IUD insertion needs to continue to be addressed in the literature, but one possible way to address that in the office is via a paracervical block, as well as injection of lidocaine at the tenaculum site. So that's a reasonable thing to offer. One last note, certainly because again of frequently these debates that we see um, with patients, with providers, um, is that patients' pain really should be believed and the discussion surrounding pain relief in these scenarios needs to be individualized. There are some patients certainly that may require nothing other than oral medications, if that at all, um, but if appropriate and after discussion, some patients may require, you know, again, either local anesthetic or they may require more significant anesthetic and something like like an OR procedure. Um, so again, there's a lot of individualizing that needs to be done around here and certainly more literature to come in this arena, I imagine. So the next one, Faye, is a complication that I have to say I'm not unfamiliar with, with um, IUD insertion, particularly with those post-placental IUDs, is seeing the patient back for that string check visit and not seeing the strings. Yeah, absolutely. So this is, you know, the um, thing that I think we see as obstetricians and get a little bit scared about. Um, but really the most common reason for a non-visualized IUD string is that the string uh, is just retracted into the cervical canal or the uterine cavity. So the IUD is still there. Um, so the first step when you see a patient back and you don't see any strings is you can use a cyto brush, which is just the brush that we use for pap smears, for example, and just sweep the canal and see if the strings are retrievable if they come right down from the cervix itself. 
But um, non-visualized strings can also indicate other complications like pregnancy, expulsion of the IUD, or even uterine perforation of the IUD. And so the committee opinion actually has a really great flow chart that uh, we will post on our website for you to follow the steps of what to do if you can't see the strings after you've tried that cytos brush trick. So if your strings can't be visualized after this, then the first thing we have to do is we have to rule out pregnancy. And so we should be giving these patients a pregnancy test. And then we can also offer them emergency contraception if it's indicated. The next step is to then do uh, some form of imaging with a pelvic ultrasound. And that way you can see if that IUD is still located within the uterus. If the IUD is not visualized with the pelvic ultrasound, then the next step is to obtain an x-ray of the abdomen and pelvis. Um, and then if the IUD is still not visualized, then the IUD has likely been expelled and it's no longer in that patient. Um, if the IUD is visualized and it is not within the uterus, but somewhere else on that x-ray, then this may require laparoscopic removal if there is true perforation and migration. If the IUD is in place and you just can't see the strings and the patient wants to keep that IUD in, there's no reason that we actually have to remove the IUD at that point. All right, so let's say, you know, we have the IUD strings or let's say the IUD strings cannot be visualized, but then we can't actually remove the IUD or potentially the IUD is not in the correct position, Nick. What do we do next? Yeah, so let's talk first about the difficult removal. You have an IUD that is wanting to be requested and say first strings can't be visualized. Um, Another tool you spoke about sort of using the cytobrush, um, another tool to potentially remove the IUD is something called an alligator forceps. And we're probably familiar with something like that from doing you no know, diagnostic hysteroscopies where you're like removing polyps or something. Again, alligator forceps kind of look like those alligator jaws can be used to remove the IUD. Um, before you instrument though, definitely confirm that the IUD is truly in the uterus. There's no point in putting the patient through trying to instrument out an IUD if you can't even confirm that it's there. If the strings can't be visualized, again, do all of what Faye just talked about before instrumenting to try and remove it. If the IUD is malpositioned or not in the fundus, then there's a couple of things to consider. If the IUD is in the cervix, so it's kind of come down into that lower uterine segment and is in the cervix or maybe even partially prolapsed a bit, this is considered a partial expulsion. And so the recommendation in this instance is to actually remove the IUD and replace it if replacement is desired. If an IUD though is in the lower uterine segment or low lying, so not into the true cervix itself, the ideal management is less clear overall here. Shared decision-making should be employed. Again, if the patient's asymptomatic and the IUD is sitting above that internal os, it can be retained and will be effective, but there are more studies that need to occur to see if failure rates with IUDs are higher when the IUD is located lower than it should be. Now, that was kind of confusing to say there, but again, there need to be more studies to see if there's a higher failure rate with a lower-placed IUD. Um, many IUDs that are non-fundal will actually move to a fundal position after about three months. So that's kind of an encouraging thing to find or to discuss with patients that these actually do tend to migrate into the right position over time. I think, Faye, one of the more dreaded complications certainly is 
a expulsion or not necessarily an expulsion that does happen, um, but is less catastrophic, I guess, than the other one, uterine perforation. Yeah. So, um, you know, expulsion can happen in two to 10% of users and varies by IUD type. And of course, when the IUD is placed and the risk factors for having an expulsed IUD is, um, a younger age. So less than age 20, heavy bleeding, dysmenorrhea, placement immediately postpartum, and, uh, potentially some sort of anatomic distortion of the uterine cavity. Um, and if an IUD is found to be expelled, so let's say, you know, you can't find the strings, you go through the whole algorithm, the IUD is nowhere to be found, then we do have to rule out pregnancy and then, of course, counsel the patient regarding contraceptive choices at that point. So expulsion, you know, isn't as scary necessarily if the patient is not pregnant, um, if they don't want to be. Perforation into the peritoneal cavity, on the other hand, is a little bit, um, you know, more dire. It is rare, and it really only occurs less than one in a thousand insertions. So this is something that we don't see commonly. Now, again, the recommendation here is to first rule out pregnancy because if the IUD is not within the actual uterus, it is not going to be working effectively. And then once you confirm that the patient is not pregnant, then we can proceed with surgical removal. Usually laparoscopy is preferred um, to try and remove the IUD, but certainly if needed, open laparotomy can be done. Depending on the location of the IUD, it can also be possible that it should be left in place if surgical risks associated with removal um, is too great. So uh, certainly what we would want to do is if an IUD cannot be removed, that may be a time to you know discuss with your surgical colleagues or even your gynecology oncology colleagues to see if they would be more willing to take out that IUD at that point. You can replace another IUD actually during your surgery of removing the IUD from the peritoneal cavity if the patient desires. And this IUD actually needs to be placed under laparoscopic guidance um, to make sure that you know you are not reperforating the uterus. All right, so we've definitely talked about many complications here. Let's kind of touch a little bit on some of the less common ones. So this would be things like infection. And then also, of course, you know, what do we do if the patient is pregnant and their IUD is in place? Yeah, so infection is a little more simple. IUDs should not be placed if you have a active infection going on. Infection after an IUD insertion itself is pretty rare. There is some increased risk of PID developing within the first 20 days or so after insertion, but the risk after that drops to baseline population risk. If you have a patient who has PID and they have an IUD in place though, the IUD can just be left in situ unless there's no sign of clinical improvement. And if you get that no clinical improvement, no, if you go back to our PID episode where we talked about sort of initiating hospitalization and parenteral treatment. Now, IUD removal can be considered in those scenarios where, again, you're wanting to make the patient better and maybe removing the IUD at that point is a reasonable consideration. Now, the pregnancy with IUD in place is definitely a um, consult that comes across every so often. And, you know, it's not something that is necessarily common, but it's not uncommon either. The risk of pregnancy with an IUD in place is about 2% after 10 years. This is a similar rate overall to tubal sterilization procedures. 
Now, first, if you're suspecting a pregnancy with IUD in place, an ectopic pregnancy needs to get ruled out. So do your pelvic ultrasound, and if an ectopic pregnancy is present, this needs to be managed in the way that you would manage an ectopic, medically or surgically. And then the IUD can be retained if it's desired. On the other hand, if the pregnancy is intrauterine, then you need to discuss with the patient about whether the pregnancy is undesired or desired. If the pregnancy is undesired and the patient desires termination of pregnancy, the IUD can be removed at the time of a surgical abortion or before a medical abortion. So really, in this case, you can just remove the IUD. If the pregnancy is desired or pregnancy continuation is desired, then the IUD can be removed if the strings are visible. If the strings cannot be visualized, then your next step is to do an ultrasound. If the IUD is in the cervix, then you can attempt removal. And if the IUD is above the cervix, then really the IUD should not be removed in this case. Instead, you need to have a discussion with the patient about really increased risk of obstetric complications in the setting of a pregnancy with an IUD in the uterus. And these increased risks include increased risk of spontaneous abortion, increased risk of infection, and increased risk of preterm delivery. If kind of the third possibility is that the IUD is not seen, then an x-ray should be done of the abdomen and pelvis sometime after the pregnancy is ended to again look for it to determine if laparoscopic removal should be performed. So I think that that covers sort of the complications of IUDs, Faye. Let's pivot now to talking about complications with implants or the next Nexplanon device. Sure. Um, so I think the biggest one that we should talk about is, you know, what happens if there is a non-palpable implant or a deep insertion of the implant? Um, and so uh, the first thing to do as, you know, if you lost your strings and you have an impalpable uh, implant is to rule out pregnancy. So do a pregnancy test. It's very easy. Just make sure that the patient is not pregnant. Um, and really, you know, if the patient desires removal, you should not attempt to remove the implant unless you can actually locate the implant. So if you can't feel it, don't attempt to go digging for it in the office. Um, what we should do is obtain imaging to locate the implant. And so because there is barium in the implant and the implant is radioopaque, you can do things like x-ray, CT scan, or even fluoroscopy to see where the implant actually is. Ultrasound and MRI can also be used if needed to specifically locate the actual implant itself. If there is indeed a deep insertion that cannot be removed in the office, then the first thing to do is to consult a family planning specialist or general surgery um, or somebody who is specialized and able to remove a deeper inserted implant. Um, if the implant isn't deeply located within a muscle or near a neurovascular bundle, meaning that it is nowhere near these dangerous structures, then potentially an outpatient removal can be attempted um, with your family planning specialist or general surgeon with local anesthesia and an ultrasound to tell you exactly where the implant is. But if that implant is deeply embedded into muscle or some type of neurovascular bundle, then the attempt really should only be made in the operating room with a specialist or a surgeon. And then if imaging is not able to locate the implant, then an etonogestrel serum assay can be done. And if it's negative, then there's actually no implant in that person's body. So you can stop worrying about it at that point, or potentially if the implant has been in for many, many, many years, um, it is no longer effective at that point. The last thing that I think we should also talk about, Nick, is the same thing that we talked about with the IUD, which is what if a patient has an implant in place, but they're pregnant? This is fortunately super rare. The risk overall is under 1%. 
But if a pregnancy is confirmed, then certainly, just like with the IUD, there's a higher risk of ectopic pregnancy. And so just like with the IUD, you're going to get your ultrasounds in an ectopic pregnancy, if confirmed, should be managed medically or surgically per your usual course of care. If a patient has an intrauterine pregnancy, then you're going to basically follow the same pathway. If the pregnancy is undesired, termination of pregnancy is going to be pursued, the implant can be retained. If the pregnancy, though, is desired, then the implant should be removed, though it is good to note that etanogestrel is not known to be teratogenic. All right, Faye. Well, I think that that does it in terms of talking about some clinical challenges and complications of LARCs. Why don't we try and summarize? Sure. So the first thing that we discussed is that LARCs are being used more and more over the past couple of decades. And while complications overall are rare, this means that with increased use, we are going to be seeing more complications overall. One of the complications that we spoke about today was pain with IUD insertion. This is certainly something that patients are aware of, and it is a popular topic out there, particularly on social media. A Cochrane review concluded that lidocaine 2% gel, NSAIDs, and mesoprostol were not effective for reducing pain associated with insertion, though ACOG does note in the committee opinion that routine mesoprostol use before IUD insertion is not recommended but could be considered with difficult insertions, and pain with IUD insertion needs to be further addressed, but one possible way is by using a paracervical block as well as injection of lidocaine at the taculum site. Definitely note that patient's pain needs to be believed in the discussion surrounding pain relief and options should be individualized. Non-visualized strings is a common uh, thing that can happen, and there is a good flow chart that we'll put on our website from the committee opinion, which is first to see if you're able to elicit the strings with the cytobrush, but then if they are the strings are not able to be seen, then we need to go down a whole pathway where we're ruling out possible pregnancy, um, getting imaging like pelvic ultrasound and x-ray, and potentially if the IUD has is still in the abdomen um, or in the uterus, but it's not in the correct location, then we may need to pursue further uh, actions to remove the IUD itself. With respect to difficult removals of IUD, again, always try to figure out if the IUD is in the uterus, but you can use something like alligator forceps to remove the IUD. And again, if the strings can't be visualized, check out that flow sheet on our website. With a malpositioned IUD, the cervix is your guide. If the IUD is in the cervix, this is considered a partial expulsion, and the recommendation is to remove and replace it if desired. If an IUD is in the lower uterine segment or low-lying, ideal management is less clear. As long as it's above the internal os and the patient's asymptomatic, it is still providing effective contraception. Though more studies need to be done to ascertain failure rates with this, it is helpful for patients to know that IUDs that are non-fundal shortly after insertion often move to a fundal position after about three months. In terms of expulsion and uterine perforation of IUDs, if an IUD is determined to be expulsed, then pregnancy should be ruled out. If an IUD has been noted to perforate into the peritoneal cavity, which is a rather rare occurrence, then laparoscopy should be done after imaging to, to do a surgical removal if possible. Finally, with the IUD, we talked about infection. Again, IUD shouldn't be placed if there's active infection. And in patients who have PID and have an IUD, the IUD can be left in situ unless you see no clinical improvement. 
if you determine that there's a pregnancy with an IUD in place, that risk being about 2% over 10 years, ectopic pregnancy needs to be the first thing that gets ruled out. If there's an intrauterine pregnancy, determine if pregnancy is desired or undesired. If undesired, the IUD can be removed at the time of surgical abortion or before medication abortion is performed. If the pregnancy is desired, then the IUD can just be removed if the strings are visible. But if the strings are not visualized, an ultrasound should be done. And if the IUD is in the cervix, removal can be attempted. But if it's above the cervix, patients should be educated about risks related to spontaneous abortion, infection, and preterm delivery. If you don't see an IUD at all, just like if you didn't see an IUD in the non-pregnant patient, X-ray should be done of the abdomen and pelvis after pregnancy to determine if laparoscopic removal may be needed. We then moved on to implants and discussed non-palpable implants and deep insertion of implants. Basically, we should not be attempting to remove an implant if we do not know where it is. Thankfully, implants are radio-opaque, and so different types of imaging, such as x-ray, CT, and fluoroscopy can all be used. If there's a deep insertion that can't be removed in the office, then a consultation with a family planning specialist or general surgery is usually needed for removal. If the implant is deeply embedded into muscle or nearby neurovascular bundles, then the attempt for removal should only be done in the operating room. And finally, we discuss pregnancy with implants. And while that risk overall is quite low, we need to make sure that we rule out ectopic pregnancy. If the patient desires termination of pregnancy, that can be done and the implant can be retained. But if the pregnancy is desired, then the implant should be removed overall. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Cryogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at CreogDiverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at Coffee. And if you want to support the show, you can go ahead and go into our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Coffee. You can find show notes for this episode as well as all of our previous episodes and that Rosh Review Question of the Week on our website, CreogDiverCoffee.com. And if you have suggestions for the show, a correction, or just want to say hi, go ahead and reach out to us on our email at careersovercoffee at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.